We're in the book of Ecclesiastes. We started here last week. Any kids, kindergarten through third grade, can head downstairs at this time. If you're unfamiliar with where Ecclesiastes is in your Bible, go to around the middle. You'll find a big collection of Psalms. And then right after Psalms, you'll find Proverbs. And then immediately following is Ecclesiastes. This morning, I'm going to read verse 12 from verses 12 in chapter 1 through verse 11 in chapter 2. We're going to bite off the second half of chapter 1 and then read the first half of chapter 2. If you don't have a copy of God's Word with you, there are some in the pew in front of you. Feel free to grab one of those. Otherwise, there are copies in the back there also. The translation that I'm reading from this morning is the ESV. And, uh, and while the Pew Bible in front of you does not, uh, is not an ESV, uh, the Bibles on the back table are, in fact, ESVs. Ecclesiastes chapter 1, beginning in verse 12. I, the preacher, have been king over Israel in Jerusalem, and I applied my heart to seek and to search out by wisdom all that is done under heaven. It is an unhappy business that God has given to the children of man to be busy with. I have seen everything that is done under the sun, and behold, all is vanity, a striving after the wind. What is crooked cannot be made straight, and what is lacking cannot be counted. I said in my heart, I have acquired great wisdom, surpassing all who were in Jerusalem before me, and my heart has had great experience of wisdom and knowledge. And I applied my heart to know wisdom and to know madness and folly. I perceived that this also is but a striving after wind. For in much wisdom is much vexation, and he who increases knowledge increases sorrow. I said in my heart, Come now, I will test you with pleasure. Enjoy yourself. But behold, this also was vanity. I said of laughter, it is mad, and of pleasure, what use is it? I searched with my heart how to cheer my body with wine, my heart still guiding me with wisdom, and how to lay hold on folly till I might see what was good for the children of man to do under, the, under heaven during the few days of their life. I made great works. I built houses and planted vineyards for myself. I made myself gardens and parks and planted in them all kinds of fruit trees. I made myself pools from which to water the forest of growing trees. I bought males or male and female slaves and had slaves who were born in my house. I had also great possessions of herds and flocks more than any whom had been before me in Jerusalem. I also gathered for myself silver and gold and the treasure of kings and provinces. I got singers, both men and women, and many concubines, the delight of the sons of man. So I became great and surpassed all who were before me in Jerusalem, and my wisdom remained with me. And whatever my eyes desired, I did not keep from them. I kept my heart from no pleasure, for my heart found pleasure in all my toil." And this was my reward for all my toil. Then 
I considered all that my hands had done and the toil I had expended in doing it, and behold, all was vanity and striving after wind, and there was nothing to be gained under the sun. Last week we considered the first 11 verses of chapter 1, and you remember the voice that we're reading is the voice of the preacher. The voice of the preacher in chapter 1, verse 1, we have an introduction of the preacher. Uh, this is the author, and then when we get to the end of the book, at the end of chapter 12, in chapter 12, verse 9, we'll have the author reassume his role and come back into view. But everything between chapters 1, verse 2, and chapter 12, verse 8, is the preacher preaching to us a sermon. And so we're hearing a sermon this morning. We're hearing part of this sermon that the preacher is preaching to us. Now, both of these are Solomon. This is a nifty device to give us the opportunity to enter into his mind to hear what he has to say. You remember we asked the question last week, though, why is this sermon, the sermon calls Ecclesiastes, why is this sermon preached? And we came up with two answers last week as we concluded our time in those first 11 verses. We came up with two answers. First, the first thing is that we are supposed to feel uncomfortable here under the sun. As God's people, we are to feel uncomfortable here under the sun. And then the second thing that we came up with, the second answer to the question, why is the sermon called Ecclesiastes preached, is that by reflecting on what is vain, we can more easily recognize that which isn't. By reflecting on what is vain, meaningless, and futile, we are able to recognize that which isn't. If you look back at chapter 1, verse 2, you'll see the preacher begins his sermon by saying, Vanity of vanities, says the preacher. Vanity of vanities, all is vanity. And if you go to the end of the book, chapter 12, verse 8, the last line that the preacher preaches is the same. So he bookends it with this idea of vanity or meaninglessness. What does is, what is man gain by all the toil which he toils under the sun? And so last week, we, we recognized or began to see that the preacher is preaching this sermon to show us what is vain, what is meaningless, what is futile, in order that we may discover that which isn't. And he says, he makes a blanket statement. He, he appeals to the cycles of creation. He makes this blanket statement that all is vanity. But now he gets into the nitty-gritty. Now he begins to delve into some things that he wants to expose as vanity. And so he's going to give us examples of things that are under the sun that are vain, that are meaningless, and futile. So for the next two weeks, we're going to consider four things, four-ish things, that he delves into and that he gives himself, the preacher gives himself over to. The first is wisdom. We see that right away in our text this morning. And then we'll also consider pleasure and self-indulgence in the first half of two. And the next week, we'll continue considering this idea and we'll move into the the, the middle portion of chapter 2, which I'm going to call sensible living or just sensibility, and then the end of chapter 2, which the preacher tests out work to see if it's vain or not. And according to the preacher, these are all things this world can offer us. But again, the two that we see this morning, the two that we're going to dive into this morning, wisdom, experience, 
pleasure, self-indulgence, they leave us empty. They cannot ultimately satisfy us. Before we move into these verses this morning that we've read, I would just like to say this, because I think this is important. When we come up against difficult texts, the book of Ecclesiastes definitely represents a difficult text for us. When we come up against difficult texts in the Bible, sometimes I feel like we shy away from it or we, we attempt to explain it away immediately. We attempt to say, okay, well, but, but we get this. We, we, we're going to move to the end or we dumb it down or we ignore it. And we say, we know the end of the story, so we're just going to move on. But again, last week we explored the idea that the goal of the preacher is, or one of the goals of the preachers is, that we are supposed to feel uncomfortable under the sun. We are supposed to feel uncomfortable under the sun. Here on earth, we're not supposed to feel at home. We're meant to feel out of place. We're meant to feel like strangers in the world, and the things of the world should seem strange to us. And so what the preacher does next here in his sermon is to press on some places where we're going to feel some pressure. Because the things he mentions represent things that we tend to want to put our trust in other than God. There are things that we have the ability to make or that we think have the ability to make our, our lives better. And we keep going back to them time and time again despite the inability that they have to deliver except for maybe a fleeting moment. And so this morning we're going to encounter some harsh language or we already have as we've read through it. And it's designed to make us do some soul searching. What am I trusting in that's vanity or meaningless? What am I trusting in? What am I going hard after in my life that, that can't ultimately offer me satisfaction? But again, for a fleeting moment. And I'm hopeful that as fellow believers here this morning, that we would ask that question of ourselves as we go from this place and that would, God would scrape away everything that we drift towards that is in Him. I'm hopeful, Buffalo City Church, I am hopeful that our blind eyes would see Jesus as a superior treasure to anything and everything that this world is offering us. We have the great benefit of Having Solomon before our very eyes this morning go after things that we regularly go after. He just gives it to us straight in a way that we probably will never experience here on life. Wisdom and pleasures. Things that we may not even have the opportunity to pursue. Solomon did. He tested them, their vanity. So we're not going to dumb it down. We're not going to try to explain away the difficulty, but we're going to marinate in the difficulty. <laughs> we're going to walk out of here smelling of it. So our time together this morning is going to look like this. We're going to do three things. The first thing that we're going to do is we're going to see the preacher define the task at hand. What is he about to do? He's about to test the things that are under the sun that the world tells us has the ability to satisfy us, but ultimately don't have the ability to satisfy us. So first we see the preacher define the task. And then secondly, we see the vanity of wisdom and experience. And then thirdly, we see the vanity of pleasure and self-indulgence. 
And then again next week, we'll move into sensible living, and then we'll move into the vanity of our work. So we ask the question, what is the task at hand? Consider verses 12 through 15. Look at verses 12 through 15 in your, in your Bible. The sermon called Ecclesiastes preached again to make us feel uncomfortable under the sun and to show us what is meaningless so that we might see that which has true meaning. We ask ourselves the question, how do we know that it is all vanity? How do we know that it's all meaningless? How do we understand that it's all futile? Because we have the wisest man outside of Jesus Christ, the most experienced man, the most affluent guy to live in his culture here on the line. He introduces himself in verse 12. I, the preacher, have been king over Israel in Jerusalem. I have been king over Israel in Jerusalem. This is the first time we're introduced to the preacher in verse 1, but that's by the author. This is the first time the preacher tells us with his own, in his own words who he is. So he wants to immediately build some credibility with us. What gives him the right to tell us that these things are vanity? He's the king in Jerusalem over Israel. The king over Israel in Jerusalem, that's a big statement. This is Solomon who writes this book. Now, if you've read your Bible and you've read the Old Testament, you know that there are lots of ups and downs for the nation of Israel in the Old Testament. Actually, a lot of downs and a few ups. This actually represents a significant up, at least from a political, economic standpoint and from a standpoint of God's blessings in an earthly sense. So Solomon's writing this. He's writing this, and this is peak Jerusalem. This is peak Israel, without question. Things were going really well for the nation of Israel. Sidney Gradenius writes that the Israelites no longer lived in their quiet agricultural existence, depending on the Lord to provide their daily bread. They lived at the crossroads of a new booming international trade between Egypt and Asia Europe. Fortunes could be made and lost overnight. This is new for this people group. It was just a few hundred years earlier that they were entirely, the entire people group, the entire nation was enslaved in Egypt just a few hundred years earlier. And now they stand at the crossroads of this economic boom in the Middle East. A group of people where immense amounts of wealth were flowing through Jerusalem right now. And so it makes sense that the people of Israel would be caught up in the mindset that bigger is better. Not that unlike our own context, bigger is better. Bigger things are happening, that must mean better things are happening. But Solomon is going to attack that idea in the midst of the wealthiest time in the nation's history, in this meteoric rise onto the world stage for Israel. The question then is, why should we listen to Solomon? And the answer is clear. Because of verse 12, he's the king over Israel in Jerusalem. He's at the helm of the nation as it goes into prominence and affluence. Most world leaders in Solomon's position are not writing the book of Ecclesiastes. 
when affluence, when wealth, when economic stability, when, when a major role on the world stage comes to a nation, world leaders defend that position. Solomon undercuts it. So, verses 13 through 15, Solomon defines his task at hand. And he says in verse 12, And I applied my heart to seek and to search out by wisdom all that is done under the sun. He's going to use wisdom, the wisdom that God granted to him, to evaluate everything that's done here in the earthly realm under the sun. And so he makes a quick evaluation. His quick evaluation here, it is an unhappy business that God has given to the children of man to be busy with. When God created Adam, in Genesis chapter 1 and 2, we have this account of creation. When God created Adam, he placed him in the garden and commanded him not to eat of the, the, the fruit of the tree of the knowledge of good and evil. And he warned Adam very specifically. He said, if you do this, you will die. And you know how it goes there. Serpent shows up, offers the, offers the fruit to Eve. He deceives her. She eats. He gives to Adam. He eats. In that moment, Scripture tells us they were ashamed. They were ashamed. And then God arrives and shows up and comes to light what Adam and Eve have done. And then in Genesis chapter 3, the curse goes into effect. The curse goes into effect. Sin and the consequences of sin are shown to us clearly in Genesis chapter 3. Paradise in that moment was lost. And in the moment that happy business of living in line with God's design is exchanged for the unhappy consequences of sin. Solomon knows this. This this business is now unhappy because of thorns and thistles. The resistance to our labor. The earth sends these our way. And the preacher says that he has seen everything that is done under the sun. All that is done under heaven, he says. And this is the task at hand, and he's about to evaluate it all. Look at verse 15. He says, the consequences of sin have come to bear on all of us. He says, that which is crooked cannot be made straight. The task was to see if the crooked could be straightened out by something here under the sun. And spoiler alert, the preacher says that there is nothing that can make straight what has been made crooked here under the sun? The answer is why? Because when that curse is enacted in Genesis 3, it is God who puts it there. This is uncomfortable. We typically don't think about God like this, but it is God who speaks the curse in Genesis chapter 3 as a consequence for the sin of Adam and Eve. He doesn't allow sin to go unchecked. And if God is the one who enacts the curse, if God is the one who makes it crooked, who can make it straight again? We have to hold that thought, that question. Because the preacher wants to drive us there. 
So the task at hand for the preacher to apply himself to test everything in order to find out if everything under the sun is in fact meaningless. Is everything in fact meaningless? This is a simple scientific method. And so, he begins with wisdom and experience. So if you look in verse 16 now, Solomon moves into this this territory where he tests his own wisdom and his own experience. In verse 16, he says, I said in my heart, You'll see that again in chapter 2, verse 1, indicating that he's moving on to something else. But in chapter chapter 1, verse 16, he says, I said in my heart, I have acquired great wisdom, surpassing all who were over Jerusalem before me. And my heart has great experience of wisdom and knowledge. He's about to test something out for us. What is it that he's testing? He's stating some more credentials for us. The wisdom he possesses has never been seen before in Jerusalem or amongst the people of Israel. Wisdom and knowledge and experience have been life goals for him. And again, in a prominent setting on the world stage, Solomon had opportunity upon opportunity to gain wisdom and to gain knowledge and to gain experience. But even the preacher, even the king of Jerusalem, or king in Jerusalem over Israel, the one who God blessed with abounding wisdom, tries to contrast wisdom and folly and discovers that it is striving after wind. It is futile. It is vain. Here's what I think he means by this. Look at verse 18. For in much wisdom is much vexation, and he who increases knowledge increases sorrow. Have you ever said someone say to you that through an experience that they had, they learned how much they didn't know? You say, hey, how was that conference you went to? Oh, fine, I guess. I realized I don't know as much as I thought I did about the topic. That was seminary for me. I got there thinking I knew what was up, and I left feeling crushed under the realization that I knew a lot less than I thought I did when, when I went in. This is what the preacher is up to. Wisdom is limited. Knowledge is limited. There will always be outlier experiences as you try to apply wisdom and knowledge to them. As we gain wisdom and as we gain knowledge and as we gain experience under the sun, we become more and more aware of the wisdom and this knowledge and the experience we lack. Increased wisdom increases vexation or frustration. Increased knowledge increases sorrow or sadness. The world makes a mistake here, and you may be tempted to think this way also. We think that education can make our reality a better one. Our culture is usually preaching this. Education is a great thing, and yet increased wisdom increases vexation. Increased knowledge increases sorrow. The more people are educated, the better our world will be, people say. But the preacher disputes it right here. The madness of increased knowledge is that it comes with increased sorrow or sadness. It would seem to be wise to be educated, but no amount of satisfaction can come through it. And so the pursuit of wisdom becomes folly or foolishness or striving after wind. 
the educated are still subject to the cycles of the earth that we saw in the first half of chapter 1, and they'll still die. We're constantly being blasted in our culture with information in an information age. Forbes ran an article about a year ago about how much data is being created every day. The answer is 2.5 quintillion bytes of data. Now, that sounds really impressive, but I have no idea what that means. (laughs) This number hit more home for me, though. 90% of the data in the world was created over a two-year span in 2017 and 2018. 90% of all the data that exists in the world, all of the information that exists in the world was created in 2017 and 2018. And we are consuming it because of the internet faster than ever. In 2017, every minute, 103,447,520 spam emails are sent. Every, every minute in 2017, certainly that number has gone up. Every minute in 2017, 600 page edits are published on Wikipedia. Every minute, YouTube users watch 4,146,600 videos. 456,000 tweets are sent on Twitter. Every minute, the Weather Channel receives 18 million forecast requests. So we can talk about the weather. The preacher gets it. Are we happier? We have more access to information and education than most of human history. The answer is decidedly no. He who increases knowledge increases sorrow. You're probably taking in more information than you ever have taken in. You're probably more educated on a handful of topics than you have ever been. And the preacher says it's vanity. You have not been able to straighten out that which is crooked through all that information in your brain or in your smartphone or those degrees hanging on your wall. Zach Eswine writes, no matter how called or wise the preacher is, no matter how helpful and necessary his mentoring will prove for us to be, even a man of God still squints and sweats beneath his sun. To use even a man of God to accrue gain under the sun is vanity. After all, Solomon died. So will we. Even the very wise cannot fix the world. Wisdom, knowledge, and experiences of them are all vanity. It needs straightening out. This isn't it. The next thing the preacher tests is self-indulgence and pleasures, and he says it's vanity. Now, as we look at verses 1 through 11 in chapter 2, this is an impressive list of things. Again, it may not seem We're in an incredibly affluent culture again, but it may not seem that these things are impressive, but for Solomon, it's incredibly impressive. Look at how the preacher talks to his heart here in verse 1. Come now, I will test you with pleasure. Enjoy yourself. Solomon knew testing, that word. I will test you. He 
calls his heart, he's going to test it. Solomon knew testing. This is an internal testing of oneself, but Solomon knew testing from external source. In 1 Kings 10, the Queen of Sheba shows up in Jerusalem. Verse 1 of chapter 10 says, Now when the Queen of Sheba heard of the fame of Solomon concerning the name of the Lord, she came to test him with hard questions. Solomon answers all of the queen's questions. The Bible says that he explained everything perfectly to her and dazzled her. He dazzles her so much that verse 5 in chapter 10 says it took her breath away. And this word testing, he uses it here. Solomon tests his own heart with pleasure in the way that the queen of Sheba tests his wisdom but with an unhappy result. Because at the end of verse 1 in chapter 2, we find out that it's all vanity. Again, he just gives it to us. But behold, this also was vanity. The testing the preacher does seeks to answer the question, what in this world can satisfy the human heart? What in the world can satisfy the human heart. So he tests a bunch of things. Look at verse 2. Laughter or comedy. Verse 3, he tests alcohol. Verse 4, he tests art. Verse 5 and 6, he tests nature. Verse 6 and 7, he tests money and material. Verse 8, he tests music. Verse 8, he tests sex. In verse 9, he tests affirmation. In verse 11, he tests his work. Guess what? It's all vanity. Let's consider just a few of these. Comedy, he says, or laughter in verse 2. He says, I said of laughter, it is mad and of pleasure. What you've used, of what use is it? Proverbs 14, 13 says, even in laughter the heart may ache. Laughter is good medicine, but it cannot overcome death. It is madness to go on and watch comedy film because when the credits roll, you're a couple hours closer to your end. Laughter sometimes helps when it hurts. But the laughter of a bully on the playground only adds insult to injury after he pushes you to the ground. And laughter behind closed doors may serve as a punchline to gossip or slander. Proverbs 26, 18 through 19 says, Like a madman who throws firebrands, arrows, and death is the man who deceives his neighbor and says, I am only joking. Laughter can't make the crooked straight. Or consider alcohol. Scripture is clear that wine can give a merry heart and gladden life. But it has also placed many a person out of a job or in a position of a perpetuator of domestic, domestic abuse. Alcohol can't make the crooked straight. What about art? Or what about music? Maybe you enjoy Renaissance art or modern art or classic rock or classical music. What about the Sistine Chapel or a concerto by Bach or a Home designed by Frank Lloyd Wright or Hey Jude by the Beatles. 
There's so much beauty in human creativity, but just as you may get lost in a song or a piece of art or filmmaking or earthquakes, earthquakes and child soldiers and abortion are still part of reality. Art and music cannot make the crooked straight. What about money and material? Mark Goulston wrote on November 25th of 2011 in the Huffington Post, he wrote an article called, Why Are Americans So Unhappy? Why are Americans so unhappy is a question several Indians asked me on my recent trip to Mumbai, Bangalore, and Delhi. I felt embarrassed by it in light of seeing the still incredible amounts of poverty in India and yet seeing how happy people seemed compared to Americans. I responded, Americans may be unhappy because of all the financial insecurity since the awful financial problems began in late 2008. (laughs) One of my hosts said, With all due respect, Dr. Mark, they were unhappy long before that. And add to that, they rarely seem calm or content. Most of our country has very little, but we still seem much happier and more content than your country. What is that about? I didn't have an answer, but one came to me on my 27-hour journey back to Los Angeles. Many Americans seem to be addicted to more sooner. That can lead to feeling that at any given time, no matter what they have, they always want more. And no matter how quickly they get it, they always want it sooner. Goulston is on to something that the preacher was on to a few millennia earlier. There's a decent chance that you're here this morning and you're running hard after more stuff for a bigger bank account. It's not an uncommon thing to read in the Bible. We read it all of the time that what we have here on this earth in a material sense is fleeting and that we should not be bound to it. And yet we're so pulled by it. And it runs much deeper than we think. We self-soothe and we sear our conscience. And we say things like, well, it's not a sin to have nice things or to have money. You're right. But it is a sin to defend your unchecked pursuit of satisfaction through these things. Jesus was speaking to us when he said that it's easier for a camel to go through the eye of a needle than for a rich man to enter the kingdom of heaven. And some of, we, some of us need to wake up this morning to realize that our affluence is binding, blinding us to spiritual realities. The bigger the bank account, the more your shift, you shift your trust off of your heavenly Father for your daily needs and onto the number in your banking app or on the back of your deposit slip. You act like you have nothing, but you're swimming in so much stuff that you make Solomon look average. Have you forgotten that it doesn't last? You say, nothing lasts forever. Even quote scripture, you can't take it with you. But your life preaches a different story. We accumulate at a rate that communicates we believe that we can take it with us. Our accumulations can't stop death from coming. And our ongoing defense of our accumulations only indicates that we think they can. Jesus told a story in Luke chapter 12. Someone in the crowd said to him, Teacher, 
Tell my brother to divide his inheritance with me. But he said to him, Man, who made me a judge or arbiter over you? And he said to them, Take care and be on your guard against all covetousness. For one's life does not consist of the abundance of his possessions. And he told them a parable saying, The land of a rich man produced plentifully. And he thought to himself, What shall I do? For I have nowhere to store my crops. And he said, I will do this. I will tear down my barns and build larger ones. And there I will store all my grain and my goods. And I will say to my soul, Soul, you have ample goods laid up for many years. Relax, eat, drink, be merry. But God said to him, Fool, this night your soul is required of you. And the things you have prepared, whose will they be? So is the one who lays up treasure for himself and is not rich towards God. One's life does not consist in the abundance of his possessions. Be on guard. Money and material can't make the crooked straight. But here's the real kicker to all of this and what the preacher wants to communicate to us. You may understand how to manage your money and material wisely. You may enact biblical principles. You may give to the local church with consistency. You may be generous and give to those in need around you. You may appreciate art and hold it in its proper place and see it as pointing you to the beautiful artistry of your creator. You may laugh well with good friends in ways that honor God and don't harm others. We can all use all of the things that Solomon lists here well, and they remain vain and meaningless. They cannot bring about the gain or profit from all of our toil, and you will still die. The preacher tests wisdom, knowledge, and experience. Self-indulgence and pleasure. And discovers that they are vanity. That they have no ability to make the crooked straight. And that pursuing them is just like a crazy person running after wind. So what should we conclude then from this passage? Because this is a pretty big downer. First, similarly to last week, nothing on this earth, nothing under the sun, used wisely or foolishly, can satisfy the desires of your heart. I picked up some extra work this week, and on Wednesday evening I was heading home and I was very tired. I was tempted to dwell on my tiredness and be frustrated. But then I thought to myself, it is God who gave me the ability to work, to use my mind and my body. My work cannot satisfy me, but God can. But then I thought, and this is the second conclusion we should draw, then I thought, under the sun, even the proper attitude about being immensely tired, the correct use of resources, or huge amounts of wisdom, like Solomon, cannot stop death from coming. 
You can learn to do all the right things. You can learn to say all of the right things. You can always have a great attitude about everything. Even if you turn away from all your wrong thinking and foolishness, you will die. The third thing we should conclude is that we should feel sad about that. Work, affirmation, sex, food, drink, money, material, nature, art, laughter, all of these things, even when done and used well, Death shows up and renders it all vanity. Death did this to us. We did this to us. God did not allow that sin in the garden to go unchecked. So remember that question that we asked out of the gate because you're no doubt feeling depressed. If God is the one who can make, or one who makes crooked, who can make it as straight again? And there is only one answer. God can. This is what we should feel. This is how we should feel about everything under the sun. We oftentimes approach our Bibles and say, well, if I just modify my behavior, if I just use my money correctly, or if I just think about life in this way or that way or do this or that, the crooked will be made straight. (laughs) If we're here this morning and we're seeking to straighten things out through the proper use of work or affirmation or sex, food, drink, money, material, nature, art, laughter, any of it, it's going to remain crooked. All of that which is under the sun is subjected to death. If you're seeking satisfaction in those things, death is your king. It rules over you and casts a shadow on everything in your world. Nothing you do today, tomorrow, or the next day can end its rule in your life. But Jesus came to end the tyrannical rule of sin and death in your life. He's the only one who can do that. You must feel the pressure of this text this morning and you must run to Jesus because none of these things, the proper use of them, can make you right before a holy God. The kingship of Jesus crushes deaths. And as the one who is from above, who is not subject to what we experience here under the sun, he brings about life through his perfect life, his sacrificial death, and his resurrection. Through that act, through the sacrifice of his son, God took what was crooked because of sin and made it straight. Nothing that you pursue under the sun does done wisely or not, used wisely or used well or not, can satisfy you or end death's hold on you. Jesus, though, Jesus can. He can satisfy you. And he stands above all of these things. Friends, this morning, if you're here this morning, do not fall into this trap of modern evangelical Christianity that says if you modify your behavior to look a particular way, that you will be right before God. Do not do that. Run to Jesus. Repent of the sin of thinking that you or something that you pursue under the sun has the ability to make the crooked straight. Don't modify your behavior or demand that others do. 
demonstrate through your life that you believe that it is only God through Jesus who can make the crooked straight. We're going to go to the Lord's table this morning. When Paul writes to the church in Corinth where we just finished studying in chapter 11, Paul writes, For I received from the Lord what I also delivered to you, that the Lord Jesus on the night when he took, or when he was betrayed, he took bread, and we had given thanks, he broke it and said, This is my body, for, which is for you. Do this in remembrance of me. In the same way, he took the cup after the supper, saying, This cup is the new covenant of my blood. Do this as often as you drink it in remembrance of me. For as often as you eat this bread and you drink this cup, you proclaim the Lord's death until he comes, the death by which the crooked is made straight. And so that's what we're here to do this morning. We're here to acknowledge that the broken body and the shed blood of Jesus is that which can make things straight. So I'm going to invite you all this morning, if you are in Christ, if you have trusted Jesus for the forgiveness of your sins, this act is for you. This is an ordinance that we celebrate regularly. As you prepare to come up to the table and to grab the elements, be considering right now, what is it in my life that I'm pursuing that I think can satisfy me, that I think can make the crooked straighter, make me right before God? Consider that. When you're prepared in your heart, the worship team is going to come up and play a song. When you're prepared in your heart, come and grab the elements. You can take them back to your seat. And when your heart is ready, take them there. Again, this is for followers of Jesus, people who have put their trust in Jesus. If you're here this morning, you're like, I have no idea what that means. Take time. You don't need to come forward. We don't want to do that. Paul says there are consequences for those who are outside of Christ, who eat and drink of the Lord's table. We don't want to do that this morning. I don't want you to lead you into that. If you have children in here, I would ask you to exercise discretion for them. If they've made a profession of faith, parents, by all means, invite them to come participate with you. If you're unsure of where they stand, leave, leave it as an opportunity to share the good news of the gospel with them. So, I'm going to pray. And, uh, and when you're prepared, come forward, grab the elements, head back to your seat, and you can take them again when your heart is ready. Just by, by way of logistics, um, there are several people who have gluten allergies in, in our congregation. The bread is, in fact, gluten-free. <laughs> um, and the wine, it's not wine, it's grape juice. Just wanted to make that known um, because there are some new people in our midst this morning. Let me pray for us, and, uh, and then we'll participate together in the Lord's Supper.